Last time on Why This Universe, we talked about how accelerating particles to extremely high energies and colliding them into each other turns out to be a very important way that physicists have learned about the universe. Today, we're going to pick up that conversation and focus on the most powerful and exciting particle accelerator that exists in the world today. It's an incredible machine, it definitely deserves its own episode, and it's called the Large Hadron Collider. This episode of Why This Universe is supported by Wondrium. Wondrium is a mind-blowing subscription service that offers thousands of video and audio courses on a huge range of topics. I've been a big fan and a regular consumer of Wondrium's content for the past 15 years or so, and over that time I've listened to dozens of their courses, including ones on history, philosophy, literature, math, and science. For me, it's kind of like taking an intro-level university course from a great professor on a subject you've always wanted to know more about, but without the big tuition fee and all in the comfort of your own home or daily commute. Recently, I've been listening to a series in Wondrium entitled Understanding Russia, A Cultural History. Over 24 lectures, this course covers everything from Ivan the Terrible and Peter the Great to the role of the Russian Orthodox Church in the Revolution of 1917. It's given me some important background that really helps me understand some of the events that are going on in our world today. So if you want to learn more about Russian culture and history or just about anything else, give Wondrium a try. You can sign up for Wondrium now through our special URL to get a month of unlimited access for free. Just go to wondrium.com universe. That's W-O-N-D-R-I-U-M dot com slash U-N-I-V-E-R-S-E. You're listening to Why This Universe, a podcast where we break down the biggest ideas in physics. I'm Shalma Wegsman. And I'm Dan Hooper. Welcome back to today's episode, where we're talking all about the Large Hadron Collider, or the LHC. The LHC consists of an enormous circular underground tunnel or ring. The tunnel is 17 miles in circumference and runs between 50 and 175 meters below the city of Geneva, Switzerland, and into the neighboring portion of France. Through this tunnel, powerful magnets are used to accelerate protons in a giant beam and guide them around the circular ring. This includes over a thousand dipole magnets, whose job it is to keep the proton beam moving along the circular path, and a bunch of other magnets that are used to keep the proton beam focused and otherwise manipulate the beam along its trajectory. In total, there are about 10,000 superconducting magnets installed around the LHC, with a total mass of over 27 tons. Since these magnets are superconducting, they have to be kept at a super cold temperature in order to function, right around 1.9 degrees Kelvin. That is just barely above absolute zero. To keep these magnets so incredibly cold, physicists use liquid helium. In fact, nearly 100 tons of liquid helium is needed to keep the LHC operational. This makes the LHC the single coldest place of its size in the entire universe, even colder than the temperature of empty space, which lands around 2.7 Kelvin because of the cosmic microwave background. Around its ring, the LHC accelerates beams of protons to a speed just below the speed of light, the official speed limit of the universe. And these protons go very, very close to the speed of light, about 99.999999% of the speed of light. 
At this speed, a proton can make over 11,000 complete revolutions around the LHC's 17-mile ring in every single second. Of course, the reason that we want these protons to be moving as fast as possible is because the faster they're moving, the more energy they'll have, so that when we finally collide these two beams of protons, they'll result in a collision of very high energy. Because of Einstein's E equals mc squared equation, more energy being present means that it'll be possible to create forms of matter that have higher mass. That means creating, for a moment in these collision sites, exotic particles that we don't get to normally see in other sorts of experiments. At their speed of 99.999999% of the speed of light, each proton carries an energy of 6.8 tera electron volts. That is more than 7,000 times as much energy as what is stored in the mass of the proton when it's at rest. This is the highest energy that any particle accelerator has ever been able to reach. Before the LHC, the Fermilab Tevatron held the record, but the energies they reached were about seven times lower than that at the LHC. Instead of moving individual protons around the ring, the LHC accelerates them in big groups called bunches. Each bunch consists of about 100 billion protons, and a given bunch is separated in time from the next one by about 25 nanoseconds. This means that if you watch the protons moving through the tunnel, you'd see one bunch of 100 billion protons go by every 25 billionths of a second. So now we have these beams of protons moving through the tunnel at just slightly below the speed of light. So the next step is that we want to actually collide two of these beams together, one going in a clockwise direction and one being accelerated in the counterclockwise direction. This happens at a few designated collision points along the ring that physicists keep great track of. Now, most of these protons aren't actually colliding with each other. Most of them pass right through each other. But a small fraction of these protons hit another proton head-on. And since there are so many beams of protons, each with hundreds of billions of protons being accelerated, the total collision rate at the LHC turns out to be really high, about a billion total collisions in each second of operation. Next, let's talk about what these collisions actually look like at the LHC and what physicists hope to learn by studying them. Well, first of all, like, let's keep in mind that it's not whole protons doing the colliding here. You know, each proton is made up of smaller, more fundamental particles like quarks, antiquarks, and gluons. So instead of thinking about a collision at the LHC as something taking place between two protons, it's perhaps more correct to think of these collisions taking place between two of these smaller kinds of particles, like between two quarks, for example, or between two gluons, or between a quark and an antiquark, or so on and so forth. The proton is like a big, like, bag of loosely connected, you know, quarks and gluons and antiquarks. When two of those bags hit, you know, not every quark involved really gets a big impact, but two of those quarks or gluons or antiquarks, you know, they're the things doing the colliding. So in each of these collisions, the particles involved exchange energy and momentum between each other, and then they basically create a little explosion, creating a shower of different energetic particles. Some particles created in these explosions may be very heavy, unstable, and short-lived, changing into other particles before we can even observe them in our detector. Instead, they just see this outgoing shower of leftover particles. By measuring the characteristics of as many of these outgoing particles as possible, physicists can try to reconstruct what really went on in the underlying collision, 
hopefully allowing us to infer the kinds of particles that were present in that initial explosion. These kinds of measurements are really difficult to perform, at least if you want to make the measurements precisely enough to kind of learn the sorts of things that we're trying to learn from these collisions. To make these sorts of measurements, physicists have designed and built huge detectors which surround each of the LHC's collision points. And I can't overstate the word huge. I really, really mean huge. These are like gymnasium-sized collections of electronics and other like 21st century components. As those little explosions happen and particles fly out in all directions, this gymnasium-sized thing records, you know, where those particles are going, how much energy they have, what, you know, their properties are, all that sort of stuff. In total, there are four of these detectors at the LHC. Um, two of them are kind of known as the all-purpose detectors, and they're called CMS and ATLAS. Those stand for something, but physicists almost never talk about what they stand for, so I'm just going to call them CMS and ATLAS. And then the other two are called ALICE and LHCB, and these are more specialized detectors. I don't think in this podcast I'm going to get into the details of what makes each of these four detectors different, uh, but it suffices to say they're all unique and they all have with their own, come with their own advantages and disadvantages. But for the purposes of kind of this view from 30,000 feet, the four detectors are all kind of the same. They all have the same main basic components designed to measure as much as they can about the collisions going on inside them. It's kind of like we're filming a movie at each collision site, and each detector captures the scene at a different angle or in a different sort of light. Except instead of worrying about angles and low lights and close-ups, the detectors at the LHC actually capture different energies, charges, and different particle properties. So let's describe the basic detector components to give you a flavor for how these, these detectors at the LHC really work. So the first component immediately surrounds the collision point. So this is the innermost component, and we call this component the tracker. The tracker is designed to measure the trajectories of electrically charged particles that pass through it. So if an electron or a proton or any charged particle moves into the tracker, they, it deposits energy in that tracker in a way that allows you to kind of reconstruct where that particle moved through this inner part of the detector. There's also a magnetic field that's embedded in the tracker. So different charged particles will move differently in like kind of curved trajectories through the tracker, depending on how much charge they have and the sign of that charge, like if it's positive or negative. So the tracker basically tells us what kinds of charged particles are moving through it, and how much energy they each have. Once the particles leave the tracker, they enter the second stage of the detector, well, really the second and third stages, which are both known as calorimeters. One of these calorimeters is designed to slow down electrons, positrons, and photons, and to measure how much energy those sorts of particles have. And then the second outer calorimeter does kind of the same thing, but instead of electrons and photons, it slows down the particles we call mesons and baryons, again measuring their energies in that process. So at this point, we're starting to get a, you know, pretty complete picture of a lot of these collisions. Some particles flew out in all directions. We measured all the charges of those particles and their initial energies. And then we slowed down a lot of those particles in the two calorimeters, measuring their energies in detail. And Basically, most of the particles in that original collision have probably slowed down and come to essentially a halt by this point. But there's an exception. The exception are the particles we call muons. 
Muons are basically like electrons, but they're heavier and unstable. And because they're so much heavier than the electrons, they don't lose nearly as much energy as they pass through those calorimeters. So they escape the calorimeters and they enter the fourth and final stage of the detector. Um, we call it the, the muon tracker. It's basically a second tracker, but it's higher density and it's specifically, you know, designed to identify muons and to measure their energy and momentum. So every single measurement at the LHC is actually a collection of measurements of four different kinds of detectors capturing many, many particles, all in a tiny fraction of a second. It was quite a while ago, a decade or something ago, but I remember seeing this movie, Angels and Demons, based on a Dan Brown novel. And uh, the LHC is in that, in that fictional. Oh, really? Yeah. And uh, so, <laughs> but they, they totally depict it wrong. They like, we turned on the LHC and like a collision happens. And they're done. <laughs> like, they, they, they built this thing to, to collide two protons together once. This is a hundred billion of these every second for years. You know, it's a very, very different problem than Hollywood chose to depict it. The fact that the LHC works and that physicists can parse through its data is nearly unbelievable. Every collision results in a messy jumble of energy readings, and physicists are somehow able to clean and analyze that enough to understand what particles they're looking at and what new physics it could imply. I mean, it's the, probably there's nothing that can be more impressive than developing a piece of technology that you have a hard time believing could exist. You know, it, it, you know, like you sometimes watch science fiction that's not very, very good. And you're like, oh, come on. Like, you know, nothing could ever do that. And reality turns out to be that way when it comes to the LHC. A project like this is never a small feat. Building the LHC costs billions of dollars and the work of tens of thousands of scientists and engineers. In each collision at the LHC, one of these detectors might detect dozens of different outgoing particles. And you measure in all, all the different stages as much as you can about what these particles are like, what they're, you know, how much charge they have, how much energy they have, how much momentum they have, what directions they're moving in, all that stuff. And from that, you can use computer algorithms to try to reconstruct what went on in that initial collision. If you've heard of the LHC before, it might be because of one very important discovery. You may have even heard that it's the discovery of the quote-unquote God particle. What it really is, is the particle that is responsible for giving all the other particles in the universe mass. Without this particle, everything would be massless. And it's called the Higgs boson. The Higgs boson was like probably the main science goal of the LHC when it was designed and, and constructed. This is a particle that before the LHC was a hypothetical particle. It was, you know, theorized to exist as early as the 1960s, but, you know, we never detected it. A lot of physicists thought it probably existed, but there were some who thought it didn't. And um, this is the sort of thing the LHC should be able to produce and, and study. It turns out that a Higgs boson is created in only about one in two billion of the collisions at the LHC. In these comparatively rare collisions, the Higgs doesn't like hang out very long. It disappears almost instantly, decaying into other kinds of particles before you could ever measure the Higgs itself. Um, this happens before the Higgs ever enters even the innermost parts of the detector. So the detectors at the LHC don't ever actually see the Higgs directly, but they only see its decay products. 
It turns out there are a bunch of different ways that a Higgs boson can decay. Um, but the one that's easiest or maybe cleanest to see at the LHC is when the Higgs decays to a pair of photons. So these photons don't have any electric charge, so they basically pass through the inner detector without much happening there. But then they enter the calorimeter and they lose their energy, and, and that calorimeter measures the energy and momentum of those photons. You uh, take the measurements of those photons along with anything else in the collision, and you can work backwards to reconstruct the mass of the particle that created them in their decay. In this case, you can work back to find out that, you know, the particle that, that created these photons must have a mass of a certain value, which turns out to be the mass of the Higgs boson. And you can kind of figure out from these external particles what went on in that original innermost part of the collision. Hi, and welcome to Hiss and Tell, a cat podcast where we delve deep into the fascinating world of feline behavior with your host, me, Christina Wilson, a professional animal behaviorist. Each episode features insightful discussions with leading veterinarians, dedicated researchers and scientists, experts in cat behavior and training, and so much more. Join me as we decode the complexities of pet loss, unravel the mysteries of feline health and behavior, and discover the latest research findings. I'll meet you at Hiss and Tell. Right, so it's not even just that, like, the collision happens, there are dozens of particles and we measure them all. Like, it's also possible that the collision happens, you create a very short-lived, interesting particle like the Higgs boson, and then before we measure that, it's decaying into even more particles. So, like, it's not even necessarily that we can just take all these particles that we see and say, well, that's it, you know, so you have to, like, go backwards and be like, could these have decayed from something else? It's very complicated. You could imagine producing particles that would be exotic at the LHC that would be long-lived enough to make it into the various detector components. But most of the exotic physics we're looking for at the LHC will never do that. Um, these these are very, very short-lived particles. The, the Higgs is an example, but there are lots of other examples of particles we might want to you know look for at the LHC that we would expect to decay long before we could see them directly. So when the Higgs boson was discovered at the LHC, it wasn't because physicists actually caught it on camera. Instead, they saw two photons moving at just the right energy to imply that they were the result of the decay of a Higgs that existed for just a brief moment after the collision. But it doesn't just take one of these measurements. No single collision at the LHC like this would ever be enough information to really convince you that you'd created a particular kind of particle like a Higgs boson. Um, after all, there are lots of other ways to make energetic photons. Only a tiny fraction of the collisions make a Higgs in the first place. So any one event is probably something you could chalk up to just ordinary mundane physics going on. But if you have enough events like this, um, enough events that point to a Higgs boson being involved with a particular mass, then you could become pretty confident that the Higgs was really behind those events and at least statistically conclude that you've discovered a new kind of particle. I mentioned before that about a billion collisions take place each second at the LHC. And I also said that a Higgs boson is produced in about one out of two billion of those collisions. So putting those two numbers together, that means that a Higgs boson is created at the LHC once every couple of seconds or so. But 
only about one in 500 of those Higgses decay into the pair of photons, this kind of clean decay channel or decay mode that we're talking about. Um, so that means you have to wait something like a thousand seconds before one of those events will happen. Um, so that's like 20 minutes or something. And then it turns out that most of those events are pretty dirty and, and hard to use. So you, those end up getting thrown out. So after taking account all these things, we're really left with only maybe hundreds of these high quality telltale Higgs events that are produced in every year of LEC operations. The LEC started taking data at the end of 2009. And over the next couple of years, they started to report hints of what looks like they, it looks like the Higgs boson. You know, they weren't sure, but something Higgsy was uh, popping its head out of the data. And then finally, on July 4th of 2012, the teams operating the CMS and Atlas detectors announced that they discovered the existence of a new particle, which we now know as the Higgs boson. Because of the timing of this announcement, July 4th, 2012, many physicists, especially those of us in the U.S., now refer to July 4th as Higgs Dependence Day. <laughs> I've never heard that. <laughs> um, it's definitely a thing. It's definitely a thing. It's like the fireworks are actually celebrating the Higgs, uh, the LHC collisions. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, I'm happy to celebrate my country's independence, but um, also <laughs> I'm happy to maybe celebrate the interconnectedness of the scientific mm -hmm. world and the fact that scientists from around the world work together to build this incredible machine and discover this new facet of nature that um, could never be done by one country alone. In addition to simply learning that Higgs bosons exist, that they were being produced in these collisions, the measurements that we performed at the LHC have been used to measure a lot of the properties of this particle. Its mass, for example, has been measured at the LHC to be about 125.25 GeV, which is like 130 times as heavy as a proton. We've also measured a bunch of the different ways that Higgs bosons can decay. This includes that very useful decay to two photons, but it also different decays to things like bottom quarks, W bosons, charms quarks, tau leptons, and so on and so forth. And Here's the really impressive thing. As best as we can measure, at least so far, all of these properties, all these decay rates, all of the, the properties we measure to the Higgs boson match what we predicted using the standard model of particle physics. This is like just another, you know, feather in the hat of the standard model and its predictive power. It's, it's just uh, an incredible theory. It just keeps holding up to scrutiny decade after decade, year after year. Um, the LHC so far has not managed to break this long-standing theory and its very long string of predictive successes. And while devising a theory that successful is great news, it still doesn't satisfy some physicists. We know that there are gaps in what the standard model can explain. For example, it can't explain gravity or dark matter. And because of that, many physicists are hoping to find a place where the standard model breaks. If we find this breaking point, a prediction that the theory makes that doesn't match observations, it may point us to an even better, even more all-encompassing theory of the universe. It is a great legacy at the LAC that's been able to validate and test the standard model so well, but what I really want 
is a discovery of some kind of totally new physics, something, you know, some new forms of matter or a new force or maybe something else we haven't even thought of yet. Um, that would be a lot more exciting than yet another confirmation of the standard model. And there are a bunch of reasons to think the LHC might be able to do this, might be able to discover new physics. There are a bunch of mysteries that are faced by physicists and cosmologists that motivate us to consider other kinds of physics. After all, like there isn't a physicist anywhere worth their salt that would say that the standard model is a complete theory. That's just not in the cards. No one thinks that's true. Standard model doesn't explain dark matter. It doesn't explain why there's more matter than antimatter in the universe. It doesn't explain how neutrinos have mass. It doesn't explain dark energy. It doesn't explain inflation. All sorts of things that we don't understand that maybe the LHC's measurements can give us some hint into. So maybe, for example, we can produce particles of dark matter at the LHC. So far, we haven't seen any evidence of this, but maybe in the future that could happen. Um, maybe we could measure interactions or, or forms of matter that might exist at the LHC that would give us some idea of how our universe came to contain so much more matter than antimatter, so on and so forth. The list of these kinds of questions that we might hope to address at the LHC is a long one. And I think it's very plausible that in the years or decade ahead, um, one or more of these long-standing puzzles or conundrums could have some help in, in us understanding it from the, the new data provided by the LHC. On April 22nd of this year, 2022, the LHC started what we're calling its third run or run three. After a series of upgrades, this third run will accelerate protons to a slightly higher energy than was possible in the earlier runs. It will collide protons together at a higher rate than it used to, and it will take advantage of a lot of the various improvements that have been made to the four main detectors. For the next four years or so, this machine will run in its new configuration, accumulating as much data as it can. Hopefully some new major discoveries will come out of this, this third run. And then looking down the road a little farther into the future, there are plans to uh, collide protons at the LAC at a much higher rate, something about 10 times higher than it can currently collide at. Um, this planned run is called the high luminosity run. And this will be particularly important for looking for new kinds of particles that don't interact particularly strongly. This could include a bunch of the particles predicted in supersymmetric theories, which are one of the you know, biggest motivations for the Large Hadron Collider. And also it could maybe make the LHC more sensitive to the particles that make up the dark matter. If I'm being completely honest, these motivations are good reasons to run the LHC, but they're probably not the most likely outcome. The most likely outcome, if we find new physics that is, is that we're going to find something we didn't even know to look for, something that wasn't on our radars. If we look at the history of science and the history of our use of particle accelerators, they very rarely discovered exactly what they were designed to look for. Um, so when you build a machine that can study new kinds of interactions at new kind of scales of energy than were done ever before, you know, more often than not, new stuff was discovered, new laws of physics, new kinds of particles, new forces. If history is any, is any guide for us, the LHC could teach us something really exciting that we haven't expected yet. There's just no way to tell yet, but you know, stay tuned. LHC is going to be an exciting run for the next four years, and you know, in, in a decade or so, the high luminosity run is going to be an exciting time for particle physics. Why This Universe is brought to you by the University of Chicago Podcast Network. It's edited and produced by me, Shalma Wegsman, 
and my co-host is Dan Hooper, a professor of astrophysics at the University of Chicago and Fermilab. If you like our show and you want to support us even more, you can find us on Patreon. There you can access ad-free episodes of the show, as well as exclusive Ask Us Anything episodes where you get to ask Dan and I direct questions about physics or anything else. So if you are curious about that, you can find it at patreon.com slash whythisuniverse. Thank you so much for listening and for your support. For all you working at the LHC, find me a second version of quantum mechanics, um, <laughs> if you don't mind. I would really appreciate that. <laughs>